So these last five days have been so rich. I don't know about you, but I feel like I've been here for a long time. (laughs) Time has a way of stretching and contracting. And there is something pretty intense when we're working with our minds and heart without any distractions that um, really makes us perceive time in quite a different way. It's been a joy to sit together with some of you, be able to look at your faces up close and hear you. We're up here talking to you, and sometimes we wonder, how is it landing? So it's wonderful to hear from you. And I was very much inspired hearing what you had to share. So this is the last Dharma talk. And, you know, there is an expression in Spanish, con un pie en el estribo, with one foot on the stirrup. So if you can visualize, so some of you might be feeling already like you have one foot on the stirrup and you're about to get on your horse and gallop away back home. But we're still here. And I know that you've heard already some things about getting ready and so on, but we're here. I was telling one of you, think of it, Like when you sign up for a one-day retreat. This is it. This is, today is it. So, I hope you can be here and this with spaciousness receive the talk. And being aware that this is the last talk, I'm looking back at what ground have we covered. Now, we started with this talk by Jess, of mindfulness. What is mindfulness? And then we proceeded with uh, Devon, with her talk on the three characteristics. No, first was Bruni, with the five hindrances, and then Devon, with the three universal characteristics. And today, we're going to focus on a list, a very inspiring list that is very near to my heart, and it's called The Seven Factors of Awakening. And some of you might know that this list actually is paired very often with the five hindrances that Bruni talked about. They are presented in the teachings often as a pair, and a pair because they are a pair of opposites. So the five hindrances, these five mind states that hinder us, that hold us back in the path. And the seven factors of awakening is the opposite. This is what furthers us. This is what allows us to advance in the, in the path towards liberation. In one poem of the, a Buddhist nun of the time of the Buddha that I will be sharing at the end, um, she describes the seven factors of awakening as the seven wings of awakening. I like this very much, this idea of wings, because this is wings that carry us into the vastness of Nibbana, or liberation. Now, this vastness that Devon was talking about so beautifully yesterday. So what are these seven wings of awakening? If you had to guess, which one would you think would be the first one? The sine qua non of the practice. Mindfulness. Mindfulness, of course. So we start with mindfulness, and then we continue with investigation, energy, Joy, that we touched upon yesterday. Tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So I will touch a little bit on each of the, of the factors. And listen to um, some of the Buddha's words that presents us a very wonderful image that I think we can all relate to as far as the seven factors of awakening. It says, 
just as all the rafters of a peaked house slant, slope, and incline towards the roof peak, so too, when a practitioner develops and cultivates the seven factors of awakening, she slants, slopes, and inclines towards Nibbana. So I, I like very much this image you know, of the slanted roof, and so it is with our minds. We are inclining our minds towards developing our, this capacity to free ourselves. So what I intend to do with this talk is just to give you first just a general idea of, uh, so that you familiarize yourself with the seven factors of awakening. But I also really uh, hope that through this talk you learn to recognize these faculties in yourselves and that you also gain some understanding of how to cultivate them in your practice. I think it's important to realize that these qualities are not remote. We all have had some experience of them, so they are accessible to us. So we learn to recognize them when present. We name them because we know that naming is a way to cultivating it. Just by naming them, we are cultivating them. Now, as many of you maybe have already uh, realized, the, the order in which these lists appear has a lot of meaning. And one of the things that I, that I hope you uh, can surmise as we go along is how naturally one factor arises out of the previous one. So let's begin with mindfulness. I won't say very much about mindfulness since we had this wonderful talk about mindfulness. So I just want to stress one thing that uh, Jess put out so beautifully. You know, this idea that with mindfulness, it's not about just being mindful in the moment that, of course, is very wonderful and it's very pleasant, but that we are cultivating mindfulness to develop clear understanding and wisdom. Clear understanding and wisdom. So I want to share this poem uh, that is called Lost by David Wagner. And, you know, poems have a way of, in very few words, just capturing the felt sense of something. And when I read this poem, I thought, oh, for me, this one captures a lot of what mindfulness is all about. Stand still, the trees ahead and bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger. Must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again saying here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. So I particularly resonate with this part in the poem that says uh, you must, is this idea that you, the present moment, you must treat it as a powerful stranger. 
So we want to learn to treat the present moment as a powerful stranger. And then with this kind and respectful attitude, ask permission to know it. I know some of you have had very inspiring walks in the woods. And I've seen your faces just transform from one day to the other, touched by nature, combined with the stillness that you've cultivated, that you can just take in the outer realm in a totally new way, in such an alive, vibrating way. So wherever you are is called here. You must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and be known. There is a Benedictine monk that I admire very much. His name is David Steindl Rast. And he says about living a wise life, stop, look, go. So succinct. Stop, look, go. Stop and look, for me, is what happens with mindfulness and the next factor, investigation. Because you're looking, you're being curious. What is here? It's like in the poem. Can we tell the difference of what's around us, of what changes? And then with this wisdom that we're we're cultivating, with the mindfulness and investigation... Then we know the part of acting, the go. You know, it's as it gives us the, the green light. Okay, go. When I think of mindfulness and investigation, the image that comes to me is of Siamese twins. If you don't know where one ends and the other one begins. And this is because... Um, for me, when we are mindful, it's so natural to be curious. I mean, now you're present, and now you want to look a little bit more closely. And it's like, really, what's, what's, what's here? And we, we look. What, where we want to be careful is we all know how to be curious. But the moment we say investigation, many of us then... Uh, connected with something very intellectual. So we want to be careful because we want this investigation to be simple based on the direct experience because it's not like a research paper that is intellectual and full of, of ideas heavy on concepts. It's very much what we were doing today with Devon with uh, emotions in the eye part of the brain, you know, this interest. See what's happening here? How is this emotion felt? Where is it felt? How is it changing? How is it in relation to mindfulness? Can I hold it with mindfulness or is it way above my capacity? That's the kind of investigation that we are engaging as a faculty, or as a factor of awakening. The Pali term for this second factor is Dhamma Vichaya. And Dhamma, so the teachings like Dharma. And Vichaya we can translate as inquiry or investigation. So it's about investigating the process of applying the teachings and also the effects you know, what, how did it, you know, if I did this during the meditation, then what effect did it have? Did it lead to more skillful more behavior as far as thinking, more ease? So we want to be asking the question, what can be known? What can be known? 
what keeps us awake in the present moment. And I think the senses here are very important in this kind of investigation. For example, um, and this keeps us, <laughs> when we focus on the, on the senses, it keeps us uh, in the here, in the, phys- in the physical realm, and we don't go up in the, in the, in the conceptual realm. So, for example, well, you could ask yourself, if I had to describe a tactile sense if, in my experience of what metta is, what would it be for you? You've all had a little bit of a taste of loving kindness how would it feel to touch loving kindness? How would it feel to touch compassion? Maybe silky, maybe like velvet. I don't know, it would be different for each one. So how would we know if we are practicing investigation in a skillful way? We would know if it's leading us to this sense of aliveness, of energy, if it's locking us, if it's shrinking us, tensing it, or making us drowsy, then it's not really uh, working. But if it leads us to this sense of aliveness and energy, we're on. And that's exactly the next the next factor. So you see how natural each one grows out of the, the previous one. So the third one is energy or vidya in Pali. So very much a natural thing. When mindfulness and investigation are coupled together, there's this beautiful sense of energy. And I think each one of you have had a bit of a taste of it in this, in this retreat, at least from the people I've talked to. And you also know it, I'm sure, from something that you do in your life. You know, when you apply this caring attention and you're being curious, it's so easy to just feel this energy that comes up. It's such a pleasant state, right? When you're so engaged. Now, this energy is an essential, essential factor for our practice. No, it's like the fuel that allows us to keep going. And we want to use this, this fuel to cultivate the wholesome, the wholesome mind states, or nourish the wholesome mind states and starve the unwholesome mind states. Now, when I first <clears throat> started to practice uh, many years ago, it was a little bit challenging to hear all these poly terms. But, you know, there is a reason, because you know that, that it's very hard sometimes to translate from one language to another. And Pali has a, has a, a way of capturing what the Dharma is that when we translate it into our Western languages, it loses so much. And for example, if we translate virya as only energy, we are missing out a lot because virya has many facets. And that's why I want to look at a little bit. Some of the facets... um, other than energy, are effort, strength, courage, and persistence. It's quite a lot, huh? To pack in one word, effort, strength, courage, and persistence. So let's talk a little bit about each of these facets. So the the part of energy is that dynamic quality of of virya, which is a very positive mental and physical force. But as um, energy, energy is a resource, I would say, 
And as a, as a resource, we know very well that it is a limited resource. So knowing how to work with our energy is of great importance for living wisely. Now, how skillful are, are we in regulating our energy in daily lives? Do we experience big energetic fluctuations you know, from being euphoric to being depressed? Do we consume substances that bring about these big fluctuations? You know, my son was working at Google and I started to take a bit of a close look on how these young men live. They didn't even have time to stop to drink coffee. They were taking caffeine pills. And then at night they were taking all kinds of stuff to calm themselves down. So how much are we living that way? Are we addicted to high energy states? How skillful are we with others when we experience energy changes? Do we get moody when tired? Do we get manic when we have a lot of energy? And are we aware of the powerful connection that energy has to emotions? And we'll see, I mean, this it's energy connects so easily to, to joy, right? And when we are low in energy, it's very hard to connect to joy. And how do we work with our energy when meditating? You know, have we learned how to fine-tune our posture and our breath to regulate, like a fire, the energy? It's a very interesting thing to learn. Just with the posture and the breath, you can do so much to regulate energy. So now, effort. So that's a conscious exertion of energy with a specific end. And when we practice, we want to ask ourselves, do I know what my end is? is? What is it that I'm after? And what I've mentioned before, do we know how to make effortless effort? And so does this kind of effort you make in meditation lead to joy or to tension? And quite a few of you that I talked to in the last couple of days have mentioned that they have have felt this wonderful joy. So now you're learning the process that you've gone through. Knowingly or not, you went through mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy. So, <clears throat> strength, going back again to the, the, the facets of, of uh, virya. Strength is the mental, uh, we're referring to mental strength. And is the result of this continuous, skillful effort. And mental strength will show when you go through a difficult situation and somehow you know how to come back in and connect with this strength. It's also very useful when you want to bring up some of the determination that Uh, leads you on to work with difficult mind states. But always being very, very careful that it doesn't get, this determination that it doesn't get into rigidity. It's a very fine balance to say, yes, I'm going to stay here. This is difficult, but not not to lock up the energy. Courage, that's one that I like so much. And I have been so inspired by some of you. You know, today, some of you were reporting I really bow to you, some of you, the courage that you're showing in, in, in what you and how you're practicing. This is beautiful. And this, so this facet of courage, um, I want to share a, a quote by Songyal Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher that says, <clears throat> to be a spiritual warrior means to develop a special kind of courage. 
one that is naturally intelligent, soft, and bold. Spiritual warriors can also feel fear, yet they are brave enough to feel and perceive fear, to relate clearly to their fundamental fear, and to draw the lessons from their difficulties without evading it. So this idea of um, you know, feeling the fear and you're still being, you know, that feeling fear does not make us a coward. Feeling fear is okay. It's being able to step forward despite the shaking knees. That's what's courage. So do we say yes to difficulties in our, in our lives? Yes, here I am, ready to accept what's present. Do we, do we embrace the difficulties that arise in our spiritual path? And do we know how to apply courage to our practice in a way that renews us and fills us with well-being? And the last one I just briefly mentioned, persistence. Persistence is very important in this aspect of theory of, of energy. And there's a um, simple, nice image that uh, Gil Fransdahl mentions that pers- persistence um, is like when you, if you want to boil water, you can't just put the pot with the water on the stove and turn it on for 10 seconds and then turn it off and go do something, and then come back and turn it on for maybe 30 seconds and then you go and do something else. No, never going to boil. So you have to. It's, the, it's, it's this persisting, this continuous effort that is so important. And that's exactly what, what uh, uh, we are doing in retreat, right? This accumulating, this constancy, it's what really is powerful. The last words of the venerable Sariputta, the Buddha's chief disciple, Uh, who died actually before the Buddha. So his last words were, keep going conscientiously. This is my advice to you. The wonderful last words. Keep going. Keep going. So... This conscious and wholesome application of energy... So leads, as we see so naturally, to joy, the fourth factor. And this kind of joy is like a joyous interest. We are enjoying this uh, quality of being gathered in such wholesome way. Now, this joy is very... Um, accessible to all of us. And even if it's a few seconds that we experience it in our practice, it can have tremendous benefits. Because it, it leaves, it's, it propels us, it inspires to continue making the right effort. So even if, if, it, if it's over after just a few seconds, it's just okay, this is possible. I want to continue making wise effort so that I create the conditions for this joy to arise again. The monk and teacher Piyadasa Tara says, no one can bestow on another the gift of happiness. Each one has to build it up by effort reflection, and concentrated activity. As happiness is a thing of the mind, it should not be sought in external and material things, though they may in a small way be instrumental. So this kind of joy that we're talking about doesn't have anything to do with the worldly pleasures. You know, the, the, the worldly pleasures are something that um, are described in the teachings as bubbles on the surface of water. It's something that 
just it's there and it's and it's gone. So it's short and it doesn't leave that very positive inspiration that that uh, the joy that we feel in meditative states that it's something that keeps us engaging us to go on. This kind of joy is what arises then from the stillness No, of having, of having quieted the mind, of having engaged the mind, and it's much more pleasant than thinking. So the Buddha's disciples were known as the happy ones. I can definitely tell you that in my own practice, um, as the years have gone by, that I have experienced more joy out of the smallest things or just from a sit, or from holding a cup of tea in my hands, or watching the sunset. (coughs) Joy that arises from meditative states can be felt in many different ways. It can be felt as goosebumps, tingling, trembling, pulsing, At times we can experience it as imbuing the whole body. And sometimes it can be so intense that that, that it it almost goes into the the unpleasant. It's just too too intense. So it has a very effervescent effervescent quality, this, this kind of joy or pity. And because they, these states are so pleasant, and, and one of you was, was mentioning it in the, uh, in the practice discussions, we have to be very careful not to get attached to them. I think we've heard this several times, but we have to remind ourselves, yes, they're here, wonderful, and let them go when, when it passes. So, with joy, we get to an important juncture in this, uh, in this list of the seven factors of awakening. And the juncture is that we have gotten to the end of the group of the energizing factors. And now we go into another group that is the tranquilizing factors. But let's just close our eyes for a little bit, just to have some silence before we go on to the next one. So one of the things that I have noticed is that sometimes um, it's when talking about experiencing joy, it can trigger some people and kind of create the, the opposite effect. 
So if that's the, the case for you, just, just notice that and realize that just know that this is something that happens, that this is the sequence, but if it's not arising, it's not arising and it's not a problem. Now, <clears throat> I'd like to offer you a visual um, aid to help you remember these seven factors and also uh, understanding their nature. So I want you to visualize one of those old-fashioned scales you know, that have kind of like a T-shape. And then from each side of the horizontal bar hang two plates. Now on one, you put the weights, and the other, whatever you want to weigh. So on this side of the, the scale, we're going to put uh, investigation, energy, and joy, you know, the energizing factors. And on this side, we're going to put the tranquilizing factors, tranquility, <clears throat> concentration, and equanimity. So here we have three and three. And what happened to mindfulness? Mindfulness is the structure of the scale that allows these factors to balance, constantly balancing. You can never have too much mindfulness. It's the it's what holds the whole thing. So mindfulness is there, letting you know, oops, now you need a little bit more of the energizing factors. No, no, now you need a little bit more of the tranquilizing. And suddenly, oh, now everything is perfectly balanced. So I hope that helps you remember them and understand this lovely uh, juxtaposition of the energizing and tranquilizing. So as we said, Joy has a very pleasant, effervescent quality. But if we want to continue towards the more finely tuned mind states, we have to let that go and go into a more subtle mind state, which is tranquility. And tranquility is felt like a quiet contentment. We rest in calm. And in the discourses, tranquility is compared to the happy experience of a, a tired walker who finds a beautiful tree and he sits by the root of the tree in the shade and just rests. That's the kind of tranquility. To me, that definitely captures this image of tranquility. Now, it's common for uh, some of us to have a bit of a grandiose idea of what tranquility should be like. And when that happens, then that often turns into an obstacle to feeling tranquility. And if you find yourself at that, uh, in that situation, then it's better to think of it as non-agitation. Yeah, just think... Okay, let's give in to non-agitation. Remember, it is very important, the, the word, the, just the words that you pick to direct yourself. And I will quote uh, Pia Dasatera again. I like this quote very much about tranquility. Only when the mind is tranquil and on the right path of wise progress does it become useful to the individual possessing it and to society? An agitated and disordered mind is a danger to both the owner and others. All the havoc caused in the world is caused by people who have not learned the path of mental calm, balance, and poise. Shouldn't we make a law that every politician goes to a three-month retreat first, I would love that. A requisite. And he continues, it is not too difficult a task for a person to be calm when all things around them are favorable. 
But to have a calm mind in the midst of unfavorable circumstances is certainly difficult, and it is this difficult quality that is worth cultivating. So when the mind is tranquil, we don't feel scattered, but the opposite. We feel settled, gathered, And guess what? That is exactly what concentration is all about. So tranquility and concentration, or samadhi, go hand in hand. The etymology of the word concentration is to bring to a common center. And with this penultimate factor of concentration we can say that we bring all the previous factors into a common center. And not only that, but all of our experience of what's happening in the moment, we bring into this common center. We gather it. And this unification is like an embrace an embrace that makes us whole. It's a very beautiful uh, feeling. And a very good news, connecting again with, with Bruni's talk, is that when we are in this samadhi state, the five hindrances are gone. Temporarily, unfortunately, but nevertheless, gone. And, and notice that. This is very, very important to notice. Oh, it's so pleasant when the hindrances are gone. That's part of the, the beauty of being in this concentrated state. A great part of it is because the pleasantness, is the hindrances are absent. So this unification of the experience is powerful. It's similar of what happens with a magnifying glass or any kind of convex lens that allows the sun rays to pass through. And we know, right, when the sun rays converge into a point, the power that they create, that they can start a fire. And that's exactly... What we can say that happens with our minds. We gather all this energy, and this energy, we have to understand, it's powerful. It has the capacity to change, actually, the structure of our brain. We know now, now through the neuroscience, that that there is such a thing as malleability of the brain. So, it's actually quite, there is a, there is a sense that the, 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 the mind is malleable when you are in these states of, of concentration. I think there is a, is a, a, there's a moment where, um, as we're coming out of these uh, concentrated states, a beautiful moment to set intentions because there's so much energy that's gathered and it's also very healing. It can have profound healing effects. Now, um, the one thing that we want to be very careful about this this strong power of the of of the gathering of the unification is that <clears throat> we go only so deep in those samadhi states that we are able to remain equanimous or with equanimity okay and I thought it was interesting in one of the uh, connected discourses. There is a description of the Buddha being sick. 
and asking one of his disciples, Mahakunda, to recite the seven factors of awakening. And then the discourse says, the Buddha healed. You can make whatever you want out of it, but (laughs) there is something about these very beautiful, wholesome, and also powerful mind states that can have a profound impact on also the physical body. But here, as with uh, joy, we have to be very careful not to get attached. Very, very careful. So I like to say that when these moments of samadhi come, we receive them with humility, with humility as a gift. They come and they go. And when they go, we let them go with an open hand. And thus concentration strengthens all the factors, become balanced, and we then can embody the last factor, equanimity or upeka. Upeka. So equanimity can be described as an exquisite equipoise, equipoise of the mind. And equanimity comes as the last factor in several lists, like in the hard practices. Tonight, you're going to do equanimity, because it's the last one of the four Brahma-viharas. It's the last factor of awakening. There's another list called the Ten Perfections. That's the last one there, too. So... It's the last one because it's one of the most difficult to, to practice. We have to practice many other qualities before we are able to practice equanimity. In fact, equanimity is described sometimes as a pseudo-nibbana, pseudo-liberation. So it's as if we get, with equanimity, we get as close as possible without being liberated, but we get quite close. Now, Equanimity can very, very easily be misunderstood, confused with aloofness, distance, uh, dullness, but it has nothing to do with, with those mind states. Equanimity is very alive. It's, it's very engaged. It's like a, uh, like a shimmering presence that is fully engaged. And an image that I, uh, I don't know if I think I've heard it, but, but uh, already several times, but I resonate very much with it, is visualizing a mountain, a big mountain with this huge base stable. That's equanimity. And then you have above this wonderful, majestic mountain, the winds blowing, just like today we've had these dramatic winds with the snow swirling. So all that wind swirling can blow and the mountain doesn't move. So this stability uh, helps us with what we call in the Dharma the worldly winds, which is this, this uh, four pairs that they can blow And we all know these pairs. Gain and loss, the wins. Gains come and then losses come. Gain, loss. We stay, the mountain stays. Fame and disrepute, it blows, it blows, the mountain stays. Praise and blame, praise and blame. And pleasure and pain, we've all experienced here. But can we just stay, stay? So with equanimity, we are developing this evenness of moods, a serene neutrality, 
that leads us to see all beings impartially. It's a big, a, a big challenge. But imagine just for a, a, a second how liberating it would be if somebody says something insulting to you and you can just stay equanimous. Can you just let it kind of flow like a drip, like a, like a, a water, like a drop of water? Or some, somebody comes and compliments you. You also want to let it drip like a drop of water and not make all kinds of stories of how wonderful you are. So to finish, I want to read to you the, the poem that I mentioned at the beginning of the Buddhist nun of the time of the Buddha. I'll read only a segment. Um, the nun is called Utama, and... Um, this is the, the point. The, the translation is by Charles Halsey. So, Utama. I have cultivated all seven wings of Nibbana, paths to the attainment of liberation, just as they were taught by the Buddha. I enjoy whenever I want that which is empty without mark or measure. I am a true daughter of the Buddha always delighting in nirvana. So let's close our eyes for a moment. This is a lot of words. I feel it myself. So let's just let these words settle. And may you learn to feel the growth of these wings of awakening in you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.